Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, chapter 14. Well, in the previous chapter, Samuel set the stage for the coming of the Messiah by discussing the need to repent and warning of the destruction that would come to key Nephite cities if they rejected his message. That addressed the short-term destruction that would come to the Nephites, and in the long term, Samuel echoed the message of Alma and others, forecasting the ultimate extinction of the Nephite nation if they did not repent. Now, in this chapter, Helaman chapter 14, we come to the material that we most commonly associate with Samuel the Lamanite. All of his prophecies of the coming of the Savior are actually contained in this chapter. Specifically, Samuel will speak of 11 distinct signs. First, we'll read of five distinct signs that will signal the Savior's birth. And uh, he will tell us in verse 3, And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. Then Samuel will give us five signs of the Savior's death. And behold, again, another sign I give unto you, yea, a sign of his death, he says in verse 14. Now, in both of these instances, we can see that he speaks of a sign in the singular sense. But it is true that five specific signs do follow both of those statements. Then for the eleventh sign, there is one specific uh, sign regarding his resurrection. This uh, eleventh sign is actually not listed last as we read Helam in chapter 14, but instead it's listed among the other signs of the Savior's death. However, personally, I like to conceptualize of this sign separately, since whereas the other five signs are associated with the Savior's death. This particular sign is most certainly contingent upon the prior resurrection of the Savior before its fulfillment is recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 23. And we're talking here about the way in which the graves will open and resurrected saints will minister to people. So again, I like to think of that as a separate sign among the others uh, that uh, has to do with the resurrection of the Savior. So again, all 11 of these signs are given in this chapter exclusively in Helaman chapter 14. Mormon is then careful to list their specific fulfillment in 11 separate instances in the narrative uh, as 3 Nephi unfolds. Thus, uh, the specificity of Samuel's prophecies are especially notable, as is Mormon's care in embedding their actual fulfillment in the text of 3 Nephi. So with this established, what uh, I would like to do for a moment here is to provide a reading of each of Samuel's 11 predictions as they are listed in Helaman 14. So before we encounter them in the text as they flow there, I'd like to read them here in isolation. And then following uh, a, a reading of each of these signs, I'll read their corresponding fulfillment in 3 Nephi. 
So for starters, in verse 2 of Helaman chapter 14, Samuel will speak of the birth of the Savior that is to come in five years. He says, For five years more cometh, and behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. So then in 3 Nephi chapter 1 verse 13, we find the Lord speaking to Samuel five years later. And that's when he said, Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world. Now the second sign that Samuel will provide of the Savior's coming is found in verses 3 and 4 of Helaman chapter 14, and that's where there will be no darkness on the night before the Savior's birth. So those verses say, And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming, for behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was day. Therefore, there shall be one day and a night and a day, as if it were one day and then there were no night. And this shall be unto you for a sign, for ye shall know of the rising of the sun, and also of its setting. Therefore they shall know of a surety that there shall be two days and a night. Nevertheless the night shall not be darkened, and it shall be the night before he is born. So we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, It came to pass that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according as they had been spoken. For behold, at the going down of the sun there was no darkness, and the people began to be astonished because there was no darkness when the night came. The third prophecy of Samuel's with regard to the birth of the Savior has to do with a new star, and he talks about that in Helaman chapter 14 verse 5. It says, And behold, there shall a new star arise, such an one as ye never have beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. It's Third Nephi chapter 1 once again that has the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy, and in this case it's in verse 21. And it says, And it came to pass also that a new star did appear according to the word. For the fourth sign of the birth of the Savior, Samuel speaks more generally in verse 6 of Helaman chapter 14 of many signs and wonders in heaven. He says, And behold, this is not all. There shall be many signs and wonders in heaven. The fulfillment of this can be seen as early as Helaman chapter 16. Once Samuel is done speaking and the storytelling narrative uh, returns, in verse 13 of Helaman chapter 16, it says that in the 90th year of the reign of the judges, and by the way, that's bringing us up to near 1 BC, there were great signs given unto the people and wonders, and the words of the prophets began to be fulfilled. Then later, in 3 Nephi chapter 2, verse 1, we read of those signs and wonders which the people had heard, and the context in this verse is that those people began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven in so much that they began to be hard in their hearts. So we can see that they're becoming somewhat sensitized or desensitized and numb to these signs. But the point here is that those signs really did come to pass after Samuel had prophesied those in Helaman chapter 14, verse 6. The fifth prophecy or sign regarding the birth of the Savior can be found in the seventh verse of Helaman chapter 14, where we'll see that all people are amazed at this and they fall to the earth. Verse 7 says, And it shall come to pass that ye shall all be amazed and wonder, insomuch that ye shall fall to the earth. Verses 16 and 17 of 3 Nephi chapter 1 will show the exact fulfillment of this. 
And there were many who had not believed the words of the prophets who fell to the earth and became as if they were dead. For they knew that the great plan of destruction which they had laid for those who believed in the words of the prophets had been frustrated. For the sign which had been given was already at hand. And they began to know that the Son of God must shortly appear. Yea, in fine, all the people upon the face of the whole earth, from the west to the east, both in the land north and in the land south, were so exceedingly astonished that they fell to the earth. So that fulfillment expands our understanding of Samuel's prophecy and shows us the scope of it, that it was in the land north and in the land south, in all the land. Now moving on to the five signs that Nephi, or excuse me, that Samuel provides in Helaman chapter 14 that have to do with the death of the Savior. The first of these is listed in the 20th chapter of Helaman chapter 14 and is also referenced in the 27th chapter. Uh, having to do with the sun being darkened for three days. So verse 20 says, But behold, as I said unto you concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, in that day he shall suffer death, uh, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you, and also the moon and the stars, and there shall be no light upon the face of this land, even from the time that he shall suffer death for the space of three days to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. Then Samuel will tell the people in verse 27 that these things should be and that darkness should cover the face of the whole earth for the space of three days. So a remarkable and specific prediction and prophecy from Samuel that then finds its fulfillment in 3 Nephi chapter 8, verses 19 through 23, which say, And it came to pass that when the thunderings and the lightnings and the storm and the tempest and the quakings of the earth did cease, for behold, they did last for about the space of three hours, and it was said by some that the time was greater. Nevertheless, all these things and terrible, all these great and terrible things were done in about the space of three hours. And then, behold, there was darkness upon the face of the land. And it came to pass that there was thick darkness upon all the face of the land, insomuch that the inhabitants thereof who had not fallen could feel the vapor of darkness. And there could be no light because of the darkness, neither candles, neither torches, neither could there be fire kindled with their fine and exceedingly dry wood, so that there could be there could not be any light at all. And there was not any light seen, neither fire nor glimmer, neither the sun nor the moon, nor the stars, for so great were the mists of darkness which were upon the face of the land. And it came to pass that it did last for the space of three days, that there was no light seen, and there was great mourning and howling and weeping among the people continually. So great were the groanings of the people, because the darkness and the great destruction which had come upon them. So that again is the first of these five signs incident to the Savior's death that Samuel predicts as he's standing upon the wall of Zarahemla. The second is of thunder and lightning and earthquakes. He'll speak of that in verse 21 of Helaman chapter 14, which says, Yea, at the time that he shall yield up the ghost, there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours, and the earth shall shake and tremble. And the rocks which are upon the face of this earth, which are both above the earth and beneath, which ye know at this time are solid, or the more part of it is one solid mass, shall be broken up. The fulfillment of this, too, is recorded in Third Nephi chapter 8, in verses 6 through 7, which say, There was also a great and terrible tempest, and there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it did shake the whole earth as it was about to divide asunder. And there were exceedingly sharp lightnings, such as never had been known in all the land. This third sign that Samuel speaks is, is related to the previous, where he says in verse 22 of Helaman chapter 14, 
that the earth will be broken up. Yea, he says, they shall be rent in twain, and shall ever after be found in seams and in cracks and in broken fragments upon the face of the whole earth, yea, both above the earth and beneath. 3 Nephi 8, first in verse 12, will say that there was a more great and terrible destruction in the land northward, for behold, the whole face of the land was changed. Then it references the exceedingly great quaking of the whole earth. Verses 17 and 18 then say, And thus the face of the whole earth became deformed because of the tempests and the thunderings and lightnings and the quaking of the earth. And behold, the rocks were rent in twain. They were broken up upon the face of the whole earth insomuch that they were found in broken fragments and in seams and in cracks upon all the face of the land. Now in verse 23 of Helaman chapter 14, Samuel will provide us with the fourth sign of the death of the Savior in the form of great tempests and mountains that are laid low and valleys that are raised up to be mountains. So that verse says, And behold, there shall be great tempests, and there shall be many mountains laid low, like unto a valley, and there shall be many places which are now called valleys which shall become mountains whose height is great. This very specific image is is then fulfilled as it's spoken of historically in 3 Nephi chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, that say that on the thirty and fourth year, in the first month, on the fourth day of the month, there arose a great storm, such an one as had never been known in all the land. And there was also a great and terrible tempest, and there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it did shake the whole earth as if it was about to divide asunder. In that case, we do not read of the depression of the mountains or the elevation of the valleys, but we do read in that fulfillment of the great tempest. Finally, for Samuel's fifth prophecy that's associated with the death of the Savior, we read this in verse 24 of Helaman 14, And many highways shall be broken up, and many cities shall become desolate. Third Nephi chapter 8, verses 8 through 11 have the fulfillment of that prophecy. They say, And the city of Zarahemla did take fire, and the city of Moroni did sink into the depths of the sea, and the inhabitants thereof were drowned. And the earth was carried up upon the city of Moronihah, that in the place of the city there became a great mountain. So there's the idea that there's the elevation of earth up to a mountain. And there was a great and terrible destruction in the land southward. Then we get this language in verses 13 and 14 that uh, tie in so specifically to Samuel's prophecy. And the highways were broken up, and the level roads were spoiled, and many smooth places became rough. And many great and notable cities were sunk, and many were burned, and many were shaken, till the buildings thereof had fallen to the earth, and the inhabitants thereof were slain, and the places were left desolate. And now finally for the 11th sign that Samuel speaks of in Helaman chapter 14. And in this case, it's associated with the resurrection of the Savior. And it's that the graves will open, and that resurrected saints will arise out of those graves and minister to people. So Samuel says in verse 25, And many graves shall be opened, and shall yield up many of their dead, and many saints shall appear unto many. The fulfillment of this remarkable prophecy can be found later in 3 Nephi chapter 23, in verses 9 through 13. Verily I say unto you, I commanded my servant Samuel the Lamanite, that he should testify unto this people, that at the day the Father should glorify his name in me, now we can see here that this is the Savior himself speaking, by the way, that there were many saints who should arise from the dead, and should appear unto many, and should minister unto them. And he said unto them, Was it not so? 
And his disciples answered him and said, Yea, Lord, Samuel did prophesy according to thy words, and they were all fulfilled. And Jesus said unto them, How be it that ye have not written this thing, that many saints did arise, and appear unto many, and administer unto them? And it came to pass that Nephi remembered that this thing had not been written. And it came to pass that Jesus commanded that it should be written, therefore it was written according as he commanded. So there's uh, another thing happening here, of course, uh, besides just the recording of the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy, and it's this dialogue the Savior's having with his disciples and discussing how it is that that particular fulfillment had not yet been recorded. So, of course, that fulfillment is recorded for us in the having of that dialogue. Well, those are the 11 distinct signs that we will encounter in Helaman chapter 14. We'll come to all of them in the text, of course, and in proper context, but I think it's uh, remarkable to look at them in isolation in this way and to read of their fulfillment. And when we do read of their fulfillment, it's a remarkable thing indeed to uh, read this account of what actually happened and see how uh, the exact things that Samuel spoke of did take place. It certainly reminds us, as do other instances in Scripture, but this one is is a really pointed instance of this, certainly reminds us that when prophets do prophesy of something in the future, even when it seems like it's very unlikely, uh, the pattern is that it does eventually come to pass. So looking at these signs now in their totality, as they're presented in Helaman chapter 14, uh, Ogden and Skinner have said, one particularly unusual sign of the death of God's Son was the three days of darkness. The signs of light and darkness at his birth and death are appropriate. When the Savior comes into the world, there is more light. When he departs, there is more darkness. The purposes of all these signs given in advance were to the intent that ye might believe on his name, that the people might repent of their sins and have them remitted, and to reward their faith, quote, that they might know that their faith had not been in vain, which it will say in 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 8. Well, so it is for us as we consider the signs that precede the second coming of the Savior. Well, now let's take a moment and look at the layout of this remarkable 31-verse chapter. First of all, in verse 1, we get this editorial interjection from Mormon. He shows us that he's using his editorial discretion here, really, in verse 1, because he will say, so we're pausing from Samuel's words that we received in Helaman chapter 13, we're getting Mormon's interjection here, and he will say that Samuel prophesied a great many more things which cannot be written. The implication there then, of course, again, is that Mormon is using his editorial discretion to decide what it is that we are given in his abridgment. Then in verse 2, through verse 7, uh, Samuel's messianic prophecies will begin. And in this section, we'll read that the Son of God will come in five years, and that that will uh, also accompany many signs and wonders in heaven when that time comes. Now, the other signs that we talked about incident to the Savior's birth will follow as we move through the text. But we can see in verses 8 through 13 that Samuel will stop for a moment and discuss his reason for speaking to the people. And very interestingly here, we will find that his reason is that an angel commanded it, and Samuel also has his own intrinsic reasons for wanting to do so. He wants to extend the redemption of Christ to other people. Uh, So he'll be very clear about that as we go on. To see that an angel commanded this is of great interest to us because Samuel used the words glad tidings 
in the previous chapter in his sermon. So sure enough, we find that once again, when a prophet is speaking of glad tidings, that that message was delivered to him by an angel. Now in verse 14, Samuel seems to be moving in to a discussion of the sign of the Savior's death. Now he is going to do that, but he's then going to digress in verses 15 through 19. And uh, it's a very worthwhile and important digression because in those verses, he'll talk about the necessity of the Savior's death. It's a subject that we can read about in Hebrews, really. This idea that it really is necessary for death um, to be a part of the plan of redemption and that the Savior himself would experience an unjust death. So Samuel will talk about this in detail and then make it clear in verse 18 that this is what bringeth to pass the condition of repentance, uh, helping us to see that repentance, as we talked about in the previous chapter, is far more than a pejorative or a a hoop that one must jump through, but it becomes uh, the, the way in which we avail ourselves of the Savior's atoning power on our behalf. So then Samuel will circle back around to what he started in verse 14 when we come to verse 20, and he will resume in giving the signs of the Savior's death. He'll do this up through uh, verse 27. Then he will come back to the idea of an angel that came to him and spoke to him, and that's in verses 28 and 29. And Samuel will give to us the angel's words regarding these signs and wonders. The angel will say that many shall see greater signs than these to the extent that they might believe. He'll also speak in verse 29 about the accountability that those who see these signs have, saying that whosoever will not believe, a righteous judgment might come upon them, and also if they are condemned, they bring upon themselves their own condemnation. Then to close the chapter in the final two verses, Samuel will will give this memorable statement on the agency of man, saying that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. Whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free. So we'll come back to that, of course, in our reading of the text. And there's lots of great commentary uh, that will um, kind of augment our understanding of that statement by Samuel. So returning now to verse 1 and remembering that we've just finished Helaman chapter 13 where Samuel has so poignantly spoke of the concept of following a a, a current and living prophet, of the curse that will be upon the land and upon the possessions of the wicked, and of the lament that they will utter. And he gives us that lament at the very end of Helaman chapter 13. So that's how that uh, amazing chapter ended. And then we come into verse 1 of this chapter, Helaman 14, which says, And now it came to pass that Samuel the Lamanite did prophesy a great many more things which cannot be written. So that really leaves a lot to our imagination. For one thing, as I mentioned in the introduction, a great many more things which cannot be written could have to do with the sacred nature of what Samuel taught. Therefore, it's um, it's something that can't be transmitted in this particular form. Uh, but instead, some of those most sacred things are transmitted in the form of symbols in sacred places. So that could be part of the meaning, but uh, also, as I mentioned, this could simply speak to the volume of the things that Samuel taught. He may have taught for a long time in Zarahemla. At the least, we know that he did so for many days. So there are all of those teachings that Mormon probably would have had access to. And then even as to the time that he was preaching upon the wall, 
uh, there was probably a great deal more that Mormon could have relayed. So he's using his editorial discretion here and being very careful in showing us the 11 signs that are embedded in the text of this chapter. And then, of course, he will very carefully show us their fulfillment as we move through Third Nephi. So now, verse 2, And behold, he said unto them, So now Mormon is taking us back into the words of Samuel, and uh, we, we won't break from that um, for the rest of the chapter. This is all now coming from the mouth of Samuel. Behold, I give unto you a sign, for five years more cometh, and behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. Donald Perry has written with respect to why these signs were given, the pivotal occasions when Christ has come to the earth, meaning both his first and his second comings, have been preceded by signs, so that the faithful may know and be blessed. Signs help the Lord's people to be prepared, and because they know what to watch for to avoid deception. So I think we can't help at this point um, but, but think of the second coming of the Savior, and how it is that if these signs that preceded his first coming were all very clearly delineated and then very clearly fulfilled, what signs have been clearly delineated with respect to the second coming of the Savior that we can rest assured will later be very clearly fulfilled? And, and where are they in Scripture? Well, most notably probably is the Olivet Discourse, that which was given in Matthew chapter 24, and then which was elucidated upon in Joseph Smith Matthew when, when Joseph provided more context and order and detail to that section of the Savior's Olivet Discourse. And that gives us many of the signs of his second coming. And of course, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 45 and section 29, and there are other uh, key places like that. Verse 3, And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. For behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was day. To this Ogden and Skinner say something very interesting. There shall be great lights in heaven. Could these lights be the angelic hosts who were present at their master's entrance into mortality, appearing in glory? And there they, they reference Luke chapter 2, verse 9, and also verses 13 and 14 that talk about these angelic hosts. Verse 9, of course, is, is the one that says, The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, referring to the shepherds and uh, the way that the angels visited them. Verses 13 and 14 say, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So the point of interest there is that there was a multitude um, with this angel of heavenly host. And so Ogden and Skinner are equating the presence of those angelic hosts to great lights in heaven. Uh, a very interesting idea. Now Samuel continues in verse 4, Therefore there shall be one day and a night and a day, as if it were one day and then there were no night. And this shall be unto you for a sign, for ye shall know of the rising of the sun and also of its setting. Therefore they shall know of a surety that there shall be two days and a night. Nevertheless, the night shall not be darkened, and it shall be the night before he is born. And behold, there shall a new star arise, such an one as ye have never beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. Well, that, of course, is one particular sign that's consistent with the way in which the Savior's coming or his birth was signified in the old world as well, the star. These great lights in the heavens 
and this star is something that McConkie and Millet have written extensively about. And here they say, all things testify of Christ. And this is out of their doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon. All things testify of Christ. At his birth, the heavens resounded forth in magnificent splendor with all manner of signs and wonders. Here, Samuel foretells a day without night following it, and a new star along with the other signs and wonders, all of which would attest to the birth of the Prince of Light. How appropriate and typical, with the coming of the light of life into the world, there would be no darkness. Our Lord's birth into mortality was accompanied by the appearance of a new star in the heavens. It is apparent that another prophet, or perhaps even a number of prophets in the old world, had also prophesied of this sign. For when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, seeking the Messiah of the Jews, they said, We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The statement seems to assume that the Jews of Jerusalem were aware that a new star would bear record of the holy birth, as at least the leaders were that the birth itself would take place in Bethlehem. After the wise men had been questioned by Herod, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. That language is out of Matthew chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. There is no Old Testament prophecy, excuse me, McConkie and Millet continue, on this aspect of the Savior's birth that is comparable to that of Samuel the Lamanite. The nearest allusion is found in the prophecy of Balaam, who, speaking of the Messiah himself, said, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This prophecy obviously refers to the first coming of Christ, but does not announce itself as indicating a sign of his birth. The only other related passage is in the book of Revelation, where Christ refers to himself as the bright and morning star. The appearance of a star, or of a phenomenon of light accompanying the birth of one destined to a significant role in history, is a common motif in the literature of the ancient Near East. Such legends are but the dim reflection of the lost prophecy of the star that was to announce the Messiah's birth. So, a really wonderful piece of commentary there by McConkie and Millet, and this idea of a lost prophecy of the star that was to announce the Messiah's birth suggests that Old Testament prophets— some at least had a more specific concept of this star that would appear in the heavens, but that does not appear in our Old Testament today. But here we get Samuel's prophecies in such incredible clarity here in Helaman chapter 14. So verse 6, And behold, this is not all. There shall be many signs and wonders in heaven, and it shall come to pass that ye shall all be amazed and wonder insomuch that ye shall fall to the earth. So there are the uh, fourth and fifth signs of his coming that Samuel gives us there. The many signs and wonders in heaven more generally, and then the way that people will fall to the earth. And those specific fulfillments are in third Nephi, and of course we've read those already. So now as we come into verse 8, Samuel will discuss his reason for speaking to the people. Rather than simply dispensing these signs and reading them in isolation or reciting them in isolation in the way that I did in the introduction to this, Samuel has other things to say, so he's embedding those signs in this broader message. And his broader message here is, in verse 8, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall believe on the Son of God, the same shall have everlasting life. And behold, thus hath the Lord commanded me by his angel that I should come and tell this thing unto you, Yea, he hath commanded that I should prophesy these things unto you. Yea, he hath said unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent, and prepare the way of the Lord. So he's making it clear here that he has been commanded to do this. He's using his own agency to return to this wall, 
to stand on top of it and to preach to these antagonistic people. But he's also making it clear that he was commanded to do this. Verse 10, And now because I am a Lamanite and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, and because it was hard against you, ye are angry with me and to seek to destroy me and have me cast out from among you. Well, that's very consistent uh, with what Nephi taught when he says, And because it was hard against you, ye were angry with me. The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, as Nephi taught. Verse 11, And ye shall hear my words, for for this intent have I come upon the walls of this city, that ye might hear and know of the judgments of God which do await you because of your iniquities, and also that ye might know the conditions of repentance. So there's that wonderful phrase in verse 11, the conditions of repentance. And then in verse 12, Samuel will talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, that that's also what he wants to tell them. And then in 13, the message of repentance. But first to read some commentary with respect to this phrase, the conditions of repentance. Uh, This is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Elder Richard G. Scott taught, In the miracle of forgiveness, Spencer W. Kimball gives a superb guide to forgiveness through repentance. It has helped many to find their way back. He identifies five essential elements of repentance. Sorrow for sin. Study and ponder to determine how serious the Lord defines your transgression to be. That will bring healing sorrow and remorse. It will also bring a sincere desire for change and a willingness to submit to every requirement of forgiveness. Abandonment of sin. This is an unyielding, permanent resolve to not repeat the transgression. By keeping this commitment, the bitter aftertaste of that sin need not be experienced again. Then the third, confession of sin. You always need to confess your sins to the Lord. If they are serious transgressions, such as immorality, they need to be confessed to a bishop or stake president. Please understand that confession is not repentance. It is an essential step, but it is not of itself adequate. Partial confession by mentioning lesser mistakes will not help you resolve a more serious, undisclosed transgression. Fourth, restitution for sin. You must restore as far as possible all that which is stolen, damaged, or defiled. Willing restitution is concrete evidence to the Lord that you are committed to do all you can to repent. Now, fifth, obedience to all the commandments. Full obedience brings the complete power of the gospel into your life with strength to focus on the abandonment of specific sins. It includes things you might not initially consider part of repentance, such as attending meetings, paying tithing, giving service, and forgiving others. Then Elder Scott says, I would add a sixth step, recognition of the Savior. Of all the necessary steps to repentance, I testify that the most critically important is for you to have a conviction that forgiveness comes because of the Redeemer. It is essential to know that only on his terms can you be forgiven. That's out of an April 1995 conference report from Elder Scott. The the Institute Manual continues by saying, In addition to the important elements taught above by President Kimball and Elder Scott, repentance must also include change. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained, We must change anything we can change that may be part of the problem. We thank our Father in heaven we are allowed to change. We thank Jesus we can change, and ultimately, we do so only with their divine assistance. Certainly not everything we struggle with is a result of our actions. Often it is the result of the actions of others or just the mortal events of life, but anything we can change we should change, and we must forgive the rest. In this way, our access to the Savior's atonement becomes as unimpeded as we, with our imperfections, can make it. He will take it from there. 
So again, Samuel is saying in verse 11, for this intent have I come up upon the walls of this city. That's an interesting statement because he's doing something that's probably really audacious. Maybe there was precedent for standing on the wall and preaching, delivering a message of some sort. We know that um, messages were delivered to the people through towers, for example. But in any event, this, this seems to be an audacious thing. And Samuel's saying, for this intent, I'm doing this. I was told by the Lord to do this. And and it's it's because he wants you to hear about the judgments of God which do await you and about the conditions of repentance. Now in verse 12, he'll say, and also, in other words, and also the reason I'm on this wall is that ye might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and that ye might know of the signs of his coming to the intent that ye might believe on his name. We can see with the help of the Institute Manual here that Samuel is is listing four truths in these two verses that he wants the people to know from his teachings. The first is that they uh, should know the judgments of God. The second is that they should know the conditions of repentance. The third is that they should know of the coming of Jesus Christ. And the fourth is that they should know the signs of his coming. This is a good time to pause and read this commentary from John Welch uh, out of a piece he wrote called Textual Consistency. Uh, There are extensive, intricate consistencies found in the Book of Mormon. Passages tied together precisely and accurately, though separated from each other by hundreds of pages of text and dictated weeks apart. And uh, that, that, I would add, is so remarkably true as we get down into the details of the Book of Mormon. It's, it's staggering, really. Welch continues, In Helaman chapter 14, verse 12, Samuel the Lamanite spoke of the coming of Christ, so that the people in the city of Zarahemla might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning. The 21 words in italic appear to be standard Nephite religious terminology derived from the words given to Benjamin by an angel from God. See Mosiah chapter 3, verse 8. The general mode of translation used by Joseph Smith in bringing forth the Book of Mormon is well known. He dictated the text to a scribe as he translated the record, going through the text only a single time. People do not often stop to think, however, about the implications and challenges of this unusual and formidable manner of writing. For one thing, dictating a final copy of a letter, let alone a book, the first time through is extremely difficult. Yet the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon is remarkably clean. There are few strikeovers, and only minor changes were made as the book went to publication. The vast majority of those changes involved spelling, capitalization, punctuation, and grammar. Even more remarkable are the extensive, intricate consistencies within the Book of Mormon. Passages tied together precisely and accurately, though separated from each other by hundreds of pages of text, and dictated weeks apart. And here are a few examples of this now from Welch. 1. In Alma chapter 36, Alma recounts the story of his conversion. In describing the joy he experienced and the desire that his soul then felt to be with God, Alma thought of Lehi's experience. Yea, methought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. That's out of Alma chapter 36, verse 22. These words in Alma chapter 36 are not merely a loose recollection of the scriptural record of Lehi's vision. There are 21 words here that are quoted verbatim from 1 Nephi chapter 1, which states that Lehi thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the, mul- in the attitude of singing and praising their God. 
Obviously, Alma is directing, directly quoting from the record of Lehi's vision in which he learned of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. It makes sense that Alma would have known these words since he had charge of the small plates of Nephi, which contained this sentence. The impressive thing about these two passages, separated by hundreds of pages, is that they were translated independently by Joseph Smith. It is highly unlikely that Joseph Smith asked Oliver Cowdery to read back to him what he had translated earlier so that he could get the quote exactly the same. If that had happened, Oliver Cowdery would undoubtedly have questioned him and lost faith in the translation. 2. Another example comes from Helaman chapter 14, verse 12. Of course, that's the verse we've just read. There, Samuel the Lamanite spoke of the coming of Christ so that the people in the city of Zarahemla might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. The 21 words in italic appear to be standard Nephite religious terminology derived from the words given to Benjamin by an angel from God. He shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. These sacred words identifying the Savior evidently became important in Nephite worship after they were revealed through Benjamin. Samuel the Lamanite would have had the opportunity to learn these words through the ministry of Nephi and Lehi among the Lamanites, for the words of Benjamin were especially important to Lehi and Nephi. Their father Helaman had charged them in particular to remember, remember, my sons, the words which King Benjamin spake unto this people, unto his people. Nephi and Lehi likely used the precise words of King Benjamin in their preaching, just as their father had quoted to them some of the words of Benjamin. Remember, that there is no way nor means whereby man can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 13, Samuel is still talking to the people about why he is on this wall. Remember, the Lord commanded him to do so, and he has a specific message to deliver to them. He's finishing that message in verse 13 by saying, And if ye believe on his name, ye will repent of all your sins, that thereby ye may have a remission of them through his merits. Jennifer Lane has written, The most basic expression of what faith produces is found in the teachings of Samuel the Lamanite. Samuel explains that if we have faith, then we will repent. The two are inseparable. This if-then relationship also makes clear that if we do not repent, it is because we do not have faith in Christ. We do not believe on his name. Our choice to believe on the atonement of Christ gives us the desire to change, that thereby ye may have a remission of them, meaning your sins, through his merits. Faith in Christ, then, produces repentance. That, by the way, is from a Journal of Book of Mormon Studies article by Jennifer Lane called Faith Unto Repentance, The Fullness of the Simple Way. Now, at this point, as we come to verse 14, Samuel will make a shift. He will now talk about the death of the Savior. So all of this is being mixed in together, um, and uh, we don't know how, how much farther the death of the Savior will take place. Will it be the normal span of a person's life, or just how long will he live? At this point, as readers, we're really not sure. Uh, But he's now going to talk about the signs of his death. So in verse 14, he says, And behold again, another sign I give unto you, yea, a sign of his death. Now, Samuel will now move into another topic before actually dispensing these signs. So again, he's not just clinically um, giving these signs out uh, in the way that I read them earlier, but again, they're, they're embedded within the text of this sermon. And so in verses 15 through 19, 
he'll kind of go on a digression here, but a very critical digression, where he, where he will now talk about the necessity of the Savior's death. And then, as I mentioned earlier, he'll circle back around to these five signs when we come to verse 20. So now, verse 15, For behold, he surely must die, that salvation may come. Yea, it behooveth him, and becometh expedient, that he dieth, to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. Now, if we're really plugged into the idea here, that we have an omnipotent, um, loving, and powerful Lord who comes to the earth, who condescends in that manner to come to the earth, that would seem like condescension enough for him to, to subject himself to the mortal limitations of a mortal life. Uh, that he would further condescend into allowing himself to be killed and allowing himself to die is, uh, is yet another thing and another level. So when Samuel says that he surely must die, that salvation may come. Uh, that is the central truth uh, of the gospel and something that is discussed carefully in Hebrews. It's something that C.S. Lewis actually um, makes so plain in his Narnia Chronicles, uh, his, his, you know, among all his amazing apologetic writings, that, that children's uh, series of seven books uh, has wonderful symbolism in it. And really does help us to understand in that particular, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that that particular volume uh, of the need for a Savior to submit himself to death in this way. So Samuel is saying the same thing here. In verse 16, Yea, behold, this death bringeth to pass the resurrection, and redeemeth all mankind from the first death, that spiritual death for all mankind, by the fall of Adam being cut off from the presence of the Lord, are considered as dead, both as to things temporal and to things spiritual. But behold, the resurrection of Christ redeemeth mankind, yea, even all mankind, and bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord. As I mentioned before, uh, Samuel the Lamanite is no Nephite, and nor is he a neophyte. He is an experienced prophet, and his way of expressing the doctrine of Christ and the need of his death and the and the the redemption that comes through his resurrection and his atonement is uh, is uh, profound and mature and poetic indeed as we read through these verses uh, here's some commentary on what we've read so far from Samuel and then there will be two more verses and some more commentary to follow first this from Ogden and Skinner resurrection is redemption the resurrection of Christ redeems all mankind and bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord Spiritual and physical death, the consequences of the fall, are thereby overcome, and all of God's children are taken back to him who made them. Whether or not we may remain there in his holy presence depends on our faith and works here in this life. Daniel K. Judd has written, The sacrifice and righteousness of the Redeemer brings everyone back into the presence of God. Whether we are allowed to remain or dwell in the presence of the Father depends upon the degree to which we have accepted the sacrifice of the Son of God and have been willing to keep his commandments. So that's a fundamental Book of Mormon teaching and implies that when we are raised back up through resurrection to meet God again, we are then judged. And so then, whether we can stay in his presence is determined by the results of that judgment. Robert J. Matthews has written this with respect to the power of the atonement to bring all back to God's presence at this point of judgment. Because of Christ, all mankind, with no exceptions, will be redeemed from those two deaths. That is, every human being will be resurrected from the dead, and every human being will be restored to the presence of God, so overcoming the physical and the spiritual death, which is separation. 
All that was lost in the fall will be restored by the atonement. I have found that many do not understand that. There is a prevailing idea that although the resurrection is free, only those who repent and obey the gospel will ever return to the presence of God. Those who adhere to this idea, however, seemed to have missed a very essential point and fundamental concept of the atonement, and that is that Jesus Christ has redeemed all mankind from all the consequences of the fall of Adam. The scriptures teach that every person, saint or sinner, will return to the presence of God after the resurrection. It may be only a temporary reunion in his presence, but justice requires that all that was lost in Adam be restored in Jesus Christ. Every person will return to God's presence, behold his face, and be judged for his own works. Then those who have obeyed the gospel will be able to stay in his presence, while all others will have to be shut out of his presence a second time and will thus die what is called a second spiritual death. So a really illuminating piece of commentary there by Matthew, something worth rereading or re-listening to, and certainly corresponds with Alma's teachings in Alma chapter 12, that, uh, and also Joseph Smith, that, we, that man is his own tormentor and his own condemner, because when all are brought to face God again, there are some that will behold his, ple- his face with pleasure, and that they at that time will see him as he is, uh, for they have become like him, and that they will have his image in their countenances at that time, and that the word, or the tree of life, as Alma explained in Alma chapter 32, will be found in them. So this will be a wonderful time for them. But there will be others that Alma spoke of in Alma chapter 12 that will wish that they could be extinct and that the mountains would fall upon them. So uh, whichever outcome it is for you and I, all of us first, as Matthews is teaching here, will be brought back to the presence of God. And so in that way, the atonement of Jesus Christ has overcome all the effects of the fall. Now coming back to verse 18, as Samuel, before moving into these signs of the Savior's death, is talking very specifically about the necessity of his death and what it is that his redemption does for us. Verse 18, yea, and it bringeth to pass the condition of repentance, that whosoever repenteth, the same is not hewn down and cast into the fire. But whosoever repenteth not is hewn down and cast into the fire, and there cometh upon them again a second, excuse me, uh, I, I, I imposed the word second here after reading uh, Robert J. Matthews, and there cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death, for they are cut off again as to things pertaining to righteousness. So note that that first spiritual death came as a consequence of the fall of Adam. We were, were separated from the presence of God. It's the state that we're in now. We are restored to his presence through the power of atonement. But if we are judged unfavorably and have not repented, then we are subject to a second spiritual death, a second separation from his presence. Now some commentary on this from Ogden and Skinner. The fire into which we are cast if we refuse to repent and turn to God is not fire as we know it. It is not a giant bonfire. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained, it is not actual fire, but it is the torment of the mind. There is yet another sense in which fire is used in the scriptures, referring to the glory of the Lord, which can either preserve and exalt or disintegrate and destroy. There are two spiritual deaths that some will experience. The first, when they come to earth and are removed for a time from the presence of God, and the second, when they depart this earth and are removed forever from the presence of God because of their disobedience and disinterest in repentance. 
These doctrinal teachings by Samuel then are great motivation to us as we read this to repent, and they were certainly great motivation to those who were within earshot of Samuel to repent, and many did act on that, as we'll discover in Helaman chapter 16. And so it is that, as Elder Packer has taught, doctrine affects our behavior even more than talking directly about behavior. Samuel will now bring this around in verse 19 by talking about the behavior that he hopes will follow after he's taught this very critical doctrine in this little digression. He says, Therefore repent ye, repent ye, lest by knowing these things and not doing them ye shall suffer yourselves to come under condemnation, and ye are brought down unto this second death. Again, first death and second death. This second death is the second spiritual death, the second instance of being separated from God that can happen to those who are not ready to stand uh, in his presence and behold his face and stay in his presence uh, because they have not followed the covenant path, have not become like him, do not possess his image in their countenances, and who would remove themselves voluntarily from his presence, wanting instead to have the mountains to fall upon them and to hide them from his presence. Now some commentary on this great verse, and first on this passage more generally. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie has said in his Doctrine of the New Testament commentary uh, with respect to second death, after the separation of body and spirit, which is the natural death, the wicked and ungodly die a second death, a spiritual death, meaning they are cast out of the presence of the Lord and are dead as pertaining to the things of righteousness. And there he references Doctrine and Covenants section 63. But when those here designated have suffered for their own sins, they shall come forth in the second resurrection and receive their inheritance in the telestial kingdom. That is, the allotted period of their spiritual death shall cease, and all men except the sons of perdition shall receive their part in the kingdoms which are prepared. So that's an important addendum to this discussion of second death, explaining that there will be a restoration even from that state for all but the sons of perdition, to a kingdom of glory. Now, speaking of this um, passage more generally, uh, this whole digression after Helaman, or excuse me, after Samuel in Helaman uh, chapter 14, verse 14, uh, when he says, I'm going to tell you what the signs of his death are, but then he doesn't. And instead he goes into this passage in, in, in uh, verses 15 through 19. Here now is some commentary on that passage that we've just taken in that has these critical doctrines from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. It says, Samuel the Lamanite described the difference between physical death, the first spiritual death, and the second spiritual death, as well as how the Savior's atonement helps us overcome these deaths. So now we'll talk about these three deaths here in the Institute Manual. First, physical death. Elder Earl C. Tingey of the Presidency of the Seventy defined physical death and who will experience it. He said, The fall of Adam and Eve brought about two deaths. We are subject to those deaths. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the physical body. Because of the fall of Adam, all mankind will suffer physical death. The second death is spiritual. It is separation from God's presence. Adam and Eve freely conversed with God in the Garden of Eden. After their transgression, they lost that privilege. Thereafter, communication from God came only through faith and sacrifice combined with heartfelt petitioning. Currently, we are all in the state of spiritual death. We are separated from God. He dwells in heaven. We live on earth. We would like to return to him. He is clean and perfect. We are unclean and imperfect. The power of Christ's atonement overcame both deaths. Following his crucifixion and burial in a borrowed tomb, Christ was resurrected on the third day. This resurrection reunited Christ's physical body with his spirit. 
The resurrection from the dead is a most beautiful aspect of the atonement and truly a part of the plan of happiness. The resurrection is universal and applies to the entire human family. We will all be resurrected. I bear testimony of that fact and truth. This is an unconditional gift from God. But to be resurrected does not overcome the second death. To gain eternal life and live in the presence of the Father and the Son, we must repent and become eligible for mercy, which will satisfy justice. So that's out of a conference addressed by Elder Tingey in April of 2006 called The Great Plan of Happiness. And uh, when the Book of Mormon Institute manual presented um, this quote from Earl C. Tingey, I've just provided a more um, expanded version of it that Thomas Arvaletta provided in, in his Book of Mormon Study Guide, actually. And and so um, now, even though uh, Elder Tingey in this more expanded statement has talked about the first spiritual death, we're, we're going to come back now to the Institute Manual and address it here. So we've talked about the physical death and now the first spiritual death. Spiritual death is when someone is cut off from the presence of the Lord. And that's language from Alma chapter 42, verse 9. President Spencer W. Kimball explained that both of these deaths are the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. Quote, Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. By eating the forbidden fruit, they became mortal. Consequently, they and all of their descendants became subject to both mortal and spiritual death. Mortal death, the separation of body and spirit, and spiritual death, the separation of the spirit from the presence of God, and death as pertaining to the things of the spirit. For us, this spiritual death occurred when we left God's presence and were born into mortality. Samuel the Lamanite called being cut off from his presence the first death. Samuel the Lamanite taught that all of Heavenly Father's children who lived in mortality will overcome physical and spiritual death through the powers of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Many other scriptures can attest to this fact, and then lots of references are given there by the Institute Manual, and many that we would expect. Uh, for example, 2 Nephi chapter 2, uh, 2 Nephi chapter 9 talks about that. And then, of course, uh, Alma chapter 11, when Amulek is speaking to Zeezrom, and Alma chapter 12, when Alma takes over in that discussion, and uh, when Alma is speaking to his son Corianton in Alma chapter 42. Now, uh, the Institute Manual uh, discusses the second spiritual death here. The second death is an ultimate or final spiritual death that comes not because of leaving God's presence to be born into mortality, but comes because of unrepented personal sin. The Savior has also provided help to overcome this second spiritual death. By suffering for our sins, he offers us the opportunity to repent. But to those who do not repent, there cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death, for they are cut off again as to things pertaining to righteousness. This means that a person with unresolved sin cannot remain in God's presence after he or she is brought back to him for judgment. Elder, and of course now President, Russell M. Nelson, has described this condition by saying, If physical death should strike before moral wrongs have been made right, opportunity for repentance will have been forfeited. Thus, the real sting of death is sin. And that's a reference from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. Even the Savior, President Nelson continues, cannot save us in our sins. He will redeem us from our sins, but only upon condition of our repentance. We are responsible for our own spiritual survival or death. So now we come to verse 20, and now Samuel will resume in giving the signs of the Savior's death. But behold, as I said unto you concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, in that day that he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you, and also the moon and the stars, 
And there shall be no light upon the face of this land, even from the time that he shall suffer death, for the space of three days, to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. Ogden and Skinner have written, Darkness would cover this land for the space of three days, to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. Three days and three nights is an idiom covering any parts of three days and nights. According to early Jewish time reckoning, any part of a day counted as a full day. After his death, Jesus did not remain in the earth three whole days and nights, else his rising from the dead would have been on the fourth day. But the scriptures mention his resurrection on the third day numerous times. That really helps us, I think, because when we look at the last week of the Savior's life and see uh, when it was that he was crucified and then when it, when it was that he rose, it can become confusing. But um, here Ogden and Skinner are saying that the counting of the days follows Jewish custom, which included both the first and the last day in the count. Verse 21, Yea, at the time that he shall yield up the ghost, there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours, and the earth shall shake and tremble, and the rocks which are upon the face of this earth which are both above the earth and beneath, which ye know at this time are solid, or the more part of it is one solid mass, shall be broken up. Yea, they shall be rent in twain, and shall ever after be found in seams and in cracks, and in broken fragments upon the face of the whole earth, yea, both above the earth and beneath. That raises many important questions to us, of course, and interesting questions about the um, the scope of the fulfillment of that prophecy and uh, what the earth has looked like ever after uh, since this event. Richard Rust has written, It is prophesied that at the death of Christ the rock, the rocks, the more part of it is one solid mass, shall be broken up. In the fulfillment of this prophecy at the time of the crucifixion, the rocks were rent in twain. They were broken up upon the face of the whole earth. On the other hand, in its wholeness, a rock is associated with Christ, the rock of salvation. It is upon the rock of the Redeemer and his doctrine we may confidently build. So in our wonderings about exactly what that looked like and what the earth looks like today as a consequence, Rust has kind of brought us back to the more important question, really, which is what is the symbolic meaning and understanding of these rocks that have broken up and and their relationship to the the rock of, of our Redeemer. Verse 23, the signs here continue. And behold, there shall be great tempests, and there shall be many mountains laid low like unto a valley, and there shall be many places which are now called valleys which shall become mountains whose height is great. Now again, when we read about the fulfillment of that in Third Nephi, it was very clear in chapter 8 that there were tempests that were a fulfillment of that. And then there was never a mention in isolation about um, valleys being elevated to, to turn into mountains and mountains being laid low. But later, when the destruction of cities was described, there, there was the idea that mountains were built up on top of destroyed cities. And many highways shall be broken up, and many cities shall become desolate. Verse 25, And many graves shall be opened, and shall yield up many of their dead, and many saints shall appear unto many. And behold, thus hath the angel spoken unto me, for he said unto me that there should be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours. And he said unto me that while the thunder and lightning lasted, and the tempest that these things should be, and that darkness should cover the face of the whole earth for the space of three days. Ogden and Skinner have written, At the time of the Savior's crucifixion and death, the earth suffered physical cataclysms. He had shown various prophets hundreds and even thousands of years in advance what physical catastrophes would transpire at his mortal death. For example, he said to Enoch, 
Look, and he looked and beheld the Son of Man lifted up on the cross after the manner of men, and he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent. That's out of Moses chapter 7, verses 55 through 56. Samuel prophesied the very thing that Matthew would record a few decades later, that many graves of the righteous dead would open up immediately after Jesus' resurrection, and they too would be resurrected and appear and minister unto many people. Notice that Samuel said he had received his information as an independent revelation from an angel. Could that messenger have been Gabriel, who also announced the Savior's ministry to other mortals? A very interesting question there. And we do wonder if those glad tidings that were um, given to these various prophets by an angelic minister were given by the same angelic minister. If that is the case, then that angelic minister is named in the New Testament as Gabriel. Verse 28, And the angel said unto me, That many shall see greater things than these, to the intent that they might believe that these signs and these wonders should come to pass upon the face of this land, to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of men. So that's a really interesting piece of information that Samuel is transmitting to us and to his hearers in Zarahemla, other things that the angel told him uh, surrounding these glad tidings. And then in verse 29, And to this intent, that whosoever will believe might be saved, and that whosoever will not believe, a righteous judgment might come upon them. And also, if they are condemned, they bring upon themselves their own condemnation. So there is certainly a level of accountability for those who, who, see, who see these signs. As to the relationship between these signs and the nurturing of faith, John Welch has written the, the following. Elder John A. Witso taught that evidence can remove honest doubt and give assurances that build faith. After proper inquiries, using all the powers at our command, he said, the weight of evidence is on one side or the other. Doubt is removed. Doubt of the right kind, that is, honest questioning, leads to faith and opens the door to truth. For where there is doubt, faith cannot thrive. Elder Joseph Fielding Smith likewise affirmed that evidence as convincing as in any court in the land proves beyond the possibility of doubt that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery spoke the truth. Over and over, I have found that solid research confirms the revelations of God. As Elder Nile Maxwell has stated, that a truth is given by God and then is confirmed through scholarship makes it no less true. President Gordon B. Hinckley has said that in a world prone to demand evidence, it is good that archaeology, anthropology, or historical research can be helpful to some and confirmatory. Evidence also makes the truth plain and plausible. In 1976, Elder Maxwell predicted, There will be a convergence of discoveries, never enough, mind you, to remove the need for faith, to make plain and plausible what the modern prophets have been saying all along. I believe that this prophecy has been amply fulfilled in the last 20 years. Literally hundreds of newly discovered insights converge on the same supporting conclusion. Certain things that might at first have appeared outrageous— on closer inspection have turned out to be right on target. And now here Welch is returning, uh, referring more generally to evidences of the truth of the Book of Mormon. The ancient Jaredite uh, transoceanic migration that lasted 344 days that we read of in Ether chapter 6 verse 11 ceases to seem so fantastic when that turns out to be exactly the length of time it takes the Pacific current to go from Asia to Mexico. The oddity of Nephi's making new arrows when only his bow had broken suddenly becomes plausible when one realizes that arrows and bows must match each other in weight, length, and stiffness. 
the bizarre ritual of chopping down the tree as part of Zemnaraiha's execution fits right into place in light of Jewish law that required the tree to be chopped down on which a person was hanged, again making it plain and plausible what the Book of Mormon has said all along. In an important sense, evidence makes belief possible. I am very impressed by the words of Austin Farrar in speaking about C.S. Lewis and quoted by Elder Maxwell on several occasions, quote, Though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows that ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. That's out of a piece by Welch called Power of Evidence in the Nurturing of Faith. And, and that last um, comment by C.S. Lewis was cited by Neil A. Maxwell in his article called Discipleship and Scholarship. Well, now for the final two verses in this chapter, where Samuel will comment in this very memorable way on the agency of man. Verse 30, And now remember, remember, my brethren, that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself, and whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free. Ye are permitted to act for yourselves. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. He hath given unto you that ye might know good from evil, and he hath given unto you that ye might choose life or death. And ye can do good and be restored unto that which is good, or have that which is good restored unto you, or ye can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. So after saying all of this in Helaman chapter 13, and all of this in Helaman chapter 14, he reminds his hearers that no one is forcing them and that they can uh, go one way or the other, that they are free to act. And of course, he's giving us that message as well. Ogden and Skinner have said, a two-verse discourse on the doctrine of agency, an indispensable principle of eternal life. It is our choice. We choose good or evil and life or death. We are not victims of our genes or our environment. We can obey despite what we may have been born with or without, or despite the homes into which we came. Whatever we choose, we get the corresponding natural consequence, the blessing or the punishment. It is the law of the harvest or the law of restoration. Then Ogden and Skinner uh, say, see Alma's treatment of the same subject in Alma chapter 41. Of course, that's when Alma talked about the law of restoration to his son Corianton. Regarding agency, Bruce R. McConkie has written in Mormon Doctrine, agency is the ability and freedom to choose good or evil. It is an eternal principle. Four great principles must be in force if there is to be agency. One, laws must exist, laws ordained by an omnipotent power, laws which can be obeyed or disobeyed. Two, opposites must exist, good and evil, virtue and vice, right and wrong. That is, there must be an opposition, one force pulling one way and another pulling the other. Three, a knowledge of good and evil must be had by those who are to enjoy the agency. That is, they must know the difference between the opposites. And four, an unfettered power of choice must prevail. And, of course, that choice is unfettered, and we know that that's critical to the plan of salvation. As much as we sometimes wish that the Lord would or could intervene, we know that we must remain sovereign so that the way remains open for us to one day become like him, for all those who will follow that course. Now, finally, concerning this idea of agency and the freedom to choose, uh, Boyd K. Packer once said, If you feel pressed in and pressured and not free, it may be for one of two reasons. One, 
If you have lost freedom, possibly it has been through some irresponsible act of your own. Now you must regain it. You may be indentured, indentured to some habits of laziness or indolence. Some even become slaves to addiction. The other reason is that maybe if you are not free, you have not earned it. Freedom is not a self-preserving gift. It has to be earned, and it has to be protected. For instance, I am not free to play the piano, for I do not know how. I cannot play the piano. The ability to play the piano, the freedom to do that, has to be earned. It is a relatively expensive freedom. It takes an investment of time and of discipline. This discipline begins, as discipline usually does, from without. I hope that you do not have contempt for discipline that originates from without. That is the beginning. A parent usually presses a youngster to practice the piano, but somewhere it is hoped practice grows into self-discipline, which is really the only kind of discipline. The discipline that comes from within is that which makes a young person decide that he wants to be free to play the piano and play it well. Therefore, he is willing to pay the price. Then he can be free from supervision, from pressure, from whatever forms of persuasion parents use. Well, it's so poetic and appropriate for Samuel to end Helaman chapter 14 with these thoughts on our freedom to choose. He'll return to the subject of repentance and the need to do so, and the way in which the Lamanites will be preserved all the way to the latter days, but the way in which the Nephites have sealed their fate to be destroyed according to his earlier prophecy. So he'll expand upon all of that in Helaman chapter 15. So for now, this brings us to the end of this remarkable and memorable chapter, Helaman chapter 14. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.